Welcome to Reset with Amber Lyon. This is the official podcast for the website Reset.me, where we interview inspiring individuals really carving their own paths in life, as well as connect you with natural medicines and therapies that are helping people hit that reset button. And today we're joined by Dr. Alicia Danforth. She has extensive research in combining psychotherapy with psychedelic medicines. She's also currently the co-investigator in a new study to test MDMA uh, with autism, patients who have autism. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Amber. It's really a pleasure to be here. I've waited years for conversations like these, and it's really exciting that they're starting to happen. Uh, especially conversations with women. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's a real, it's, uh, it's rare to <laughs> have uh, an opportunity to speak about these topics um, with women, but those opportunities are increasing as well. And, and I think, you know, when I first started researching psychedelics, I'm, I'm new to this world, so I, I'm really excited to learn from you today. But when I first started, I, all the interviews I watched online and all my research, it was always guys. <laughs> and so I thought one day if I ever start a show, I'm definitely going to bring in more women because there are a ton of women really shaking things up in this world and, and participating mm-hmm. in some amazing, facilitating amazing research when it comes to psychedelics. Absolutely. Absolutely. I hope to uh, be able to introduce you to more women working in this field and and helping them get a voice to share what they're learning. And you have extensive, you've done extensive research and the combination of psychotherapy with psychedelic medicines. What, What is it about combining the two that you think makes it so effective versus just psychotherapy alone? Because a lot of people have access to that now. It works for a lot of people, it doesn't work for some but what is it about the psychedelics that really make this effective? Well, um, the first thing that comes to mind is, a, is an analogy that we hear a lot is this idea of opening doors. You hear people make references to opening the doors of perception. Um, psychedelic medicines have the potential to kind of loosen some of the uh, the uh, inhibition or the inhibitions that we have. Um, and allows for, uh, let's see, a sense of openness, connectedness, unity, and oftentimes what we'll see in a clinical setting is a significant reduction of fear, those barriers to looking at things that may be difficult emotionally and challenging. Those, you get a window of opportunity when those barriers can come down and in a place of um, you know, relative safety and and comfort, people can open up and and look at what's challenging for them. So are there some things that people just cannot talk about or access some memories without the assistance of of psychedelics? Because you hear of so many people who have said they've tried everything. Uh, Like one of our guests, Rachel Hope, had PTSD, and she said for her entire life, she tried every single therapy. And then in one MDMA session, six to eight hours, she was able to dramatically reduce her PTSD symptoms by accessing memories she couldn't have accessed before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for some people, that is the case. And in the early uh, clinical trials, um, oftentimes we were looking for indications um, for which there either aren't good existing therapies or to reach out to those individuals who aren't responding to the conventional mainline treatments. Sometimes this alternative really works well for them when many other approaches have not. It's really on an individual case-by-case basis. Yeah. 
So let's talk a little bit about psilocybin. For those sure. new to this world, uh, it is the psychoactive compound in magic mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Psilocybin transformed my life dramatically. Uh, I was having, almost my entire life, I had anxiety issues. And uh, I started experimenting with the use of psilocybin mushrooms and was able to completely, I feel like it somehow rewired my brain. I, I find it nearly impossible <laughs> to get anxious at this point, and it and it um, for me, it just was so miraculous that that I just want to keep delving into this more and and try to introduce more and more people to to psilocybin. And and your opinion, what what is psilocybin? <laughs> what is psilocybin? Um, let's see, a lot of different ways I could answer that question. Um, because I'm not a neuroscientist, I'll, I'll stick with the clinical. Um, in my experience, psilocybin has been a tool that allows for a shift in consciousness that can facilitate feelings of a connection with the divine, the mystical realms of human experience. And uh, that really is, uh, you know, really broadly defined. Um, and the research that I did with Dr. Charles Grobe at the Harbor UCLA Medical Center, we worked with 12 individuals in the first pilot study since psilocybin was scheduled and became illegal in the early 70s. Um, and each one of them came with a different background, different uh, religious upbringing or um, uh, belief system, and yet many of them were able to access something that they described as a sense of something greater. Um, You know, there's some clinical terms for it, like unitive consciousness or an awareness of the divine or um, insights into their, pardon me, into their higher self. So it's variable. It's hard to make blanket statements about what psilocybin does generally. It's kind of more interesting to talk about what it does specifically on a case-for-case basis. And and that's something I found too with psilocybin is it helped uh, reduce my fear of death because while mm-hmm. I was on my journey with the mushrooms, I was shown that there is mm-hmm. existence after death, mm-hmm. and I was met by a higher intelligence, a force, a, a source that really solidified that belief and, and took away mm-hmm. a lot of my anxiety. Yeah. How, how did psilocybin do that for these terminal cancer patients? So so what you did is you, you took patients who were pretty much told they were going to die and gave them psilocybin sessions. Mm-hmm. How, how did that help these patients? Yeah, well, one point that's very important to clarify for your audience right out of the gate is we weren't using psilocybin to try to treat or change the course of the cancer. What we were looking at was the existential anxiety and quality of life issues that come up when someone has been given a prognosis that they may live another six months or a year. Everyone we were working with needed to be healthy enough to participate in the trial, but they all had stage four cancer, which is also referred to as metastatic cancer, which meant it started in one system in the body and had traveled into one or more other um, systems. And um, what we were looking at was helping them reduce anxiety, improve mood um, near the end of life. 
this study was a pilot study. So we were, uh, Dr. Grobe's intention really was to just look at safety and feasibility. Are we going to harm anyone? Are there potential risks we need to know about? And can this model actually be used with this population? On those two counts, the study was phenomenally successful. Nobody had a bad trip or um, had a particularly difficult time. Um, so safety was, um, was shown in that regard. And um, the model worked very well. Participants were able to feel safe and comfortable. Um, but uh, what we saw in terms of the healing was, was variable. Um, in some cases, uh, getting back to your point about the end of life and, and fear of death, one of our <laughs> participants, Annie Levy, was a clinical psychologist, and she had such a powerfully transformative experience. She became a bit of an activist in, in the time that she had remaining to live. She really wanted others to know about this. And during her session with the active psilocybin, she had a very powerful image of imagining that she was being supported by a circle of hands. And as she described it, her faith returned to her. She'd had a sense of disconnection. Um, and she outlived her prognosis by a, a fair amount. And near, near, very near the end of her life, in her last uh, several days, she'd asked me to come visit her in her home. And she was receiving hospice care there. And what she wanted me to know and what she wanted me to share with others was that feeling of being supported by a circle of hands was still very much with her. And that it was really supporting her and helping her in her final days um, be as free of fear of that transition as possible. So that uh, is one example that stood out of someone who really felt a significant reduction in fear of, of dying. And for so many of these people, you can imagine if you have an end-of-life diagnosis, you pretty much know you're going to die. The kind of anxiety that that would cause, and, and these poor individuals aren't able to really enjoy the rest of their life, with their families because they're so anxious all the time mm -hmm. uh, about dying. Mm -hmm. How how did it improve the patient's ability to connect with others and enjoy their their last days on earth? Yeah, um, our our one male participant comes to mind, and he was also someone that had a very positive experience and shared it in interviews and and in public speaking. And he knew about the study for some time and said, no, no, I'm not really anxious. He, for a long time, thought, I'm really going to beat this thing. And he had a good social support system. But at a certain point, as his cancer advanced, he began developing an anxiety about being in hospital settings. And he thought, what better way than to receive psilocybin in a, in a hospital setting to address this fear head on? And he was also starting to have more existential concerns about, you know, what's it all about? And, uh, you know, can I still be connected to other people intimately as I'm preparing to leave this life? And one of his big concerns was romance, love and intimacy and sex and romance. Can I still be a sexual being as my body is going through this transition? And he 
uh, you know, he had a, a pleasant experience and really wasn't quite sure psychologically what it meant. But this is where psychotherapy comes in, working with Dr. Grobe to integrate visions that he had that didn't seem immediately directly related, but as he heard himself describing the vision of the perfect woman that he saw while he was in his, ex his psilocybin experience, before we knew it, he had found a, a woman who was, you know, ready to be there for him and ready to enjoy a, a wonderful romance in his final months. And uh, he was able to see that even though he had a life-threatening cancer, that the things that he really wanted in his, you know, final year really were still available to him. It was, it was really a beautiful transformation to watch. So, um, yeah. So did you example. get to, so you were in the room as these patients were given the mm -hmm. psilocybin and you, you sat next to them. Yeah. Uh, what, what were some of the things that, that you witnessed that really stand <laughs> with you today? Yeah. Well, let me give your viewers a sense of uh, how we run the studies. Mm. Okay, tea? tea break. <laughs> mm. There's so much to say. Um, a lot of careful attention is paid to what we refer to as set and setting. Even though we were in a hospital, that didn't mean we couldn't decorate the place, make it more comfortable. We brought in orchids and... <clears throat> um, we, we paid very careful attention to creating a setting that was conducive to having a shift in consciousness. So uh, there were three co-facilitators in the room the entire time. It's, it's become a standard for the most part with psychedelic-assisted psychedelic therapy to have um, male and female uh, co-facilitators in the room because you never know what's going to come up. You have to kind of be ready to meet the participants wherever they decide to go. And sometimes when people are near death, they want mom or a mother figure to be there for them. Sometimes they want the strong paternal presence of a reassuring kind of father figure. So we always had that option in the room. Um, the participants were in bed. But if they ever wanted to get up, stretch, move around, that was fine. And we used the model that the early pioneers in this field um, worked with primarily of encouraging participants to put on eye shades and headphones with music to go deeply within. We provided a moderate dose as opposed to what we call a knock your socks off. Heroic, heroic. Terrence McKenna heroic <laughs> we dose. We were trying to blast them out there and have a cosmic... Uh, experience, which is not to say some people didn't have mystical experiences as, uh, while they were in the study, but we were really encouraging people to go within and really give, uh, you know, some space and time to looking at the parts of them that needed some loving attention. And So, so they and laid down, you put blindfolds on mm -hmm. and headphones? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're very um, careful in the selection of the music that we use. We tend to avoid lyrics in English that are too leading. We tend to stay with primarily instrumental um, 
music that has a little bit of an emotional charge to it. Some music that kind of feels like it's going somewhere without leading anyone someplace in particular. So we don't think to ourselves, all right, this would be a good time to put on the very sad music to, to help them cry or, oh, they're having a rough time. Let's put on some happy music. Um, we create a, a playlist that is open to interpretation wherever the, the participant needs to go. Can you think of any songs that you remember that were on the playlist? <laughs> I or get asked this a lot. I get asked this a lot. Um, it's a topic that that comes up quite a bit because um, you kind of have to be careful about the way you do it. With in the sciences, the idea is to keep everything, all the factors, as similar as possible for each participant. You want to minimize variability so that you know the only thing that's changed is the introduction of the medicine. So one school of thought says you want to play the same music in the same order for every participant. Don't change the music at all. I think the trend is towards allowing a little flexibility in that because you don't know where the participant is going to go where their shift in consciousness is going to lead them. So we tend now to have a playlist of music that supports a coming on period, a peak, and a come down. And we try to allow for some flexibility. Uh, at the least, if a participant is really distressed by one of the tracks and they absolutely don't want to be listening to that music in that moment, they can indicate that they want to. Like an intense ahead. tribal drumming track or something like that that makes it that might go be a little. Perfect medicine for someone uh, and might want to make someone else jump right out of their skin. It, it, so we're, we're sensitive to that, that some music is medicine for some folks and not for others. And what's the importance of using the blindfold? Because so many people, especially when they just you know try on their own for psychedelic therapy or whatnot, mm -hmm. they um, it's a very external experience. Uh, how does the blindfold change that? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I think on there are several ways to answer the question. Um, sometimes you're in uh, just by necessity in a kind of stark clinical setting with, you know, um, machines and sights and uh, distractions of being in, in, a, in a hospital or a clinical setting. Um, so it can be a way of just creating kind of a more neutral canvas without those kind of distractions externally. But it also, maybe, I'm kind of just thinking out loud here, it may be kind of analogous to why um, rituals such as ayahuasca ceremonies in the jungle are done at night. There's kind of a uh, a quieting down, a reduction of visual stimulation that helps the participant focus on their internal processes. Um, so uh, you could probably talk to 10 different researchers and get 10 different answers to that question, but it is to facilitate a going within as opposed to the distractions of, you know, oh, I see rainbows in that corner and it looks like there's a tree growing out of the bookcase. Um, yeah, it, it, I think it's to help promote an introspective uh, mindset. So, and, and what's the importance of, of having you guys there as psychotherapists during the experience? How did you guys help to guide it or, or mm -hmm. how, how did you help to make it a more 
uh, productive experience for the patient? Mm -hmm. uh, I think primarily the role on the treatment session days is to help the participants feel safe, feel supported, to know if a, an overwhelming emotion should come up that with a simple hand signal, someone will be there to hold their hand. Um, I think it's similar uh, to how people tend to like to have a companion along anytime they go on a journey that um, may have really exquisite moments of, of clarity and insight that you just want to share mm -hmm. with someone else. Um, a journey where you may come into rocky terrain where it gets a little scary. Um, just to know that someone is, is there who can attend to your physical needs, who can listen, um, someone who is holding the space with compassion. Um, yeah, there are, lot, there, there are lots of answers to that question as well. <laughs> I think uh, you've done a lot of research in harm reduction, that area. I think mm -hmm. that is so underreported journalistically because a lot of outlets look at it as advocacy or that they're supporting the use of, of psychedelics when right. it's so key to have the right set and setting. It, it makes a difference between what, an experience that could be a nightmare and one that could be extremely productive and help you purge a lot of trauma and, and really go deep within your psyche. What do you recommend is the best set and setting for psychedelic use? Mm. Well, it's important to consider the substance. Each substance kind of has its own, um, you know, unique characteristics that may influence things you want to take into consideration there. Um, I made a choice when I began um, doing the psilocybin research uh, to not work in the underground. I don't uh, facilitate sessions um, outside of the legal, sanctioned, FDA-approved setting, but there were uh, lots of opportunities to provide volunteer peer counseling at large gatherings where it was known that people were taking consciousness-altering substances and psychedelic medicines and um, it's always been a fine line. What can you share publicly about the fact that this kind of support is available? And, you know, it took a lot of sort of uh, uh, introspection on my part to think, you know, where do I draw that line? And what really influenced me that there was a need to um, participate in, in, in harm reduction activities was the fact that over 30 million Americans have taken a psychedelic, they're doing it anyway. And with the you know, constraints that were imposed on clinical research, so many individuals, especially very young people, are experimenting kind of in a vacuum. They're so hungry for good information about how to optimize the experiences they're having, how to keep themselves and their friends safe, that um, that kind of got me past the moral ambiguity, and um, I found ways to work in sanctioned uh, harm reduction settings. One of the best, and I just cherish this opportunity, was working in Portugal at the Boom Festival in 2010. Portugal decriminalized substance use, and they shifted from a legal model to a public health model. So at this festival, um, 
you know, out in a remote, beautiful area on a, on a little lake, the promoters could openly say, we have Cosmicare here. We have drug testing available free of charge. We're going to take all of the information that we gather from the substances that people provide us, and we're going to post that and make this, you know. So that's like testing the purity, the drug testing, testing the purity of the substances, especially Mm -hmm. with MDMA, because you never know what you're really getting. They would tell you, uh, you know, they would, you know, consolidate all the data and they would post stats, for example, 80% of what's being sold at this festival of MDMA, as, as MDMA actually is MDMA, or look out for the LSD on this blotter paper, it's actually 300 mics instead of 100. So they use the information they got to post statistics back out for the community to help people make wiser, safer choices. They also had a well-funded, well-staffed, spectacular dome space. If anybody was having a challenging experience, they could come and work with someone who would sit with them and support them until they felt ready to go back and enjoy the festival. So um, I've seen a model that works so well um, when people don't have the fear of legal repercussions at other events where I've worked for years, people are often uh, distracted with concerns that they're actually being arrested or that they're falling into a trap and we're there to catch them and get them in trouble and we're going to report what they've done. And it it takes a while <laughs> to reassure them. and say, No, 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 no. We're here to keep you safe. You're not in any trouble. Um, share with us what what you feel comfortable about what you did and what you're experiencing and we'll we'll be here to... To, to help you and support you until you're ready to join your campmates and go back to having fun. So, so say in one of these countries where psychedelics are legal, mm-hmm. someone is trying to deal with childhood trauma or some type of trauma that happened in their life. So they're thinking of taking one of the substances at their home, maybe with uh, a sitter or someone else to sit with them because mm-hmm. they can't access a psychotherapist. What do you recommend is the best set and setting? I, I get this question all the time, and I say I'm not an expert. I, you know, I, I try to send articles to people, but um, but what would be an ideal set and setting? Of course, in one of these countries where these medicines are legal. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, there's so many ways to approach an answer to this question. Like, if someone's yeah, really trying to really get in and um, mm-hmm. use the medicine to deal with with a trauma that they haven't been able to process in any other way. Right, right. Well, I can also talk about this even from the clinical setting that we use in research. Um, It's always wise to start with just having a good physical exam and and being aware if you you might, for example, with a substance like MDMA, um, you'd want to know if you had a congenital heart problem that may put you at higher risk for an adverse outcome. Um, And especially anybody that has any family history of severe mental illness, if they're likely to be prone to some of the more, um, you know, serious psychotic disorders, such as schizophrenia, um, some people who experience, um, you know, bipolar conditions may be at higher risk. Um, so uh, taking a good uh, hard look at your own mental health history is, is certainly uh, 
important. It's something we do extensively in the clinical setting. And being able uh, to take a step back and say, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe it, it, it's just not the right medicine for me. And I don't know any of the substances that are the right match for every individual. Um, so just being willing to entertain that notion. Maybe, maybe not my medicine. Maybe there's a better way for me to go. Um, what's certainly important in all settings, and when we see people getting in trouble in kind of the big gatherings, the festivals, is no thought as to intention. Why were you doing this in the first place? Um, what are you hoping to get out of it? And, you know, especially younger people are maybe a bit more susceptible to peer pressure. And, you know, often when people get in trouble, we hear, well, my friends were doing it. Well, what did you do to prepare for this powerful shift in consciousness? Well, I don't know. They were just doing it, and I, I took it, and, and that's often the problem. Uh, I would really recommend to anybody um, in, a, in a clinical setting or if they find themselves in, in a, in a uh, they attend a festival like Boom, and, and they decide they're going to go for it, spending time to really prepare it's best not to make a hasty decision. Am I hydrated? Am I well-nourished? How much sleep have I gotten in the past week? How much sleep am I going to be able to get in the week coming up? Have I done any reading about the substance I'm considering taking? What's known about this substance? Um, how has it helped other people? What are some of the pitfalls when someone has uh, a bad experience? Um, you know, what does that mean? Uh, oftentimes, um, you know, I, I, has, I hear myself use the word bad, and I, I kind of pull back from that because often people re will report that a very challenging experience is one of the most valuable they've ever had. But, um, you know, regardless of what the psyche is going to, you know, bring forward, it doesn't hurt to, to take your time, ask yourself essential questions. Why this substance? at this time? What is my intention for taking it? Am I seeking healing? Am I seeking uh, a sense of closeness to divinity? Am I drawn by an impulse to experience something mystical? Am I at baseline essentially healthy? Or am I looking to, to cure something and heal? Um, if I am looking to, to cure myself and heal, should I enlist some trusted allies um, who know this terrain to support me. So like a, a sitter or someone who can, who knows about the use of the medicines who can sit and kind of guide you? Yeah, I generally think that that's preferable to go in it alone, um, but that could be really hard to come by here. Mm. What do you think is the biggest mistake that people make uh, when Huh. taking these medicines <laughs> that leads them to have, because I, I do get emails as well from people saying, I went down and did ayahuasca as the most horrific experience of my life. I never want to do it again. Or I had a bad mushroom trip. Can you please mm -hmm. explain this? Um, what, what is the biggest mistake people are making? That's a great question. I'm so glad you've acknowledged it because there's kind of a trend now to promote these medicines as panaceas that uh, when people say they're safe, they're safe, they're safe, I kind of have to cringe and think it's, it's highly individualized. For some people, it can be the trigger if they're vulnerable 
to, you know, perhaps catalyzing a first psychotic break. Um, so I, I love that you've acknowledged that it's not just all miracle cure, rainbows light and bright, and rainbows and butterflies. No, I, I've had some pretty <laughs> horrific yeah. uh, experiences myself and noticed that that's exactly what I didn't do. I didn't set an intention the day before. What do I want from this medicine? Asking the medicine for that, really getting into why I was doing it. Mm-hmm. I also did it in a setting that um, I was in this small town in Mexico and it had, had kind of a um, a really scary, intense vibe to it. And I was able to pick up on that times 10 uh, while using the mushrooms, which then exacerbated uh, a fear element to to the psychedelic. And the whole night ended up being a journey from hell <laughs> that I promised I'd never do again. Uh, but I did notice one of my biggest problems was that I hadn't sent an intent mm-hmm. and, and I hadn't really considered the setting. And that's mm-hmm. why I, I try to say, especially on the show, how important uh, you know, I can't emphasize enough how important set and setting is. Yeah. Where are you? Who are you with? Do you have all the provisions you need to stay comf- comfortably warm or comfortably cool? Um, what did you eat today? What have you been eating in the past week or month or year? Um, do you have any other challenges with, uh, with addictions? Are you using any other substances? There's so many questions that I really just encourage everyone to pause, reflect, um, seek out reading their books now, published, um, Jim Fadiman's, uh, guide for psychedelic explorers is, is available. Um, so I encourage encourage everyone to do their homework, talk to other people, seek wise counsel. Um, I don't think it's such a bad idea to look at the indigenous traditions. So many other cultures have successfully used these technologies, but it's almost always within the context of ritual. There are things you do before, during, and after um, to really, you know, set the tone and optimize the likelihood that there'll be benefits. Um, you know, we don't, in, in this culture, I, I often think of the example, someone pointed out to me one time how, you know, how often just really almost, um, immature or impulsive we are in the West. You look at, you know, the coca plant and you look at how um, indigenous cultures where it grows wisely, you know, chew a bit in the cheek, give them a little stamina for a long journey or a long hard day's work at high altitude and you import it into the west and we create cocaine this excess you know if a little bit is good let's do a whole bunch of it out of context out of a ritual setting and it's no wonder that we you know run into problems so um yeah do some homework give yourself that gift of doing some reading um considering you know who you might want to have with you um if you're considering having one of these experiences, um, what's your family history with uh, challenges with with mental health? Um, yeah, we get we get emails on a regular basis as well of people saying, "All my friends did this, and it was the greatest thing ever, and now I have horrible anxiety. Please help." And uh, yeah, those are those are always the hardest ones to read, but it's important that we acknowledge that. And and I think that's why I try to do it on this show and say I'm not mm-hmm. advocating the use of illegal substances, but I am no. saying if you happen to do it, 
in a country where it's legal, <laughs> you, this is what experts say mm-hmm. uh, how how they should be taken because it, it does make so much of a difference between it's almost night and day if you consider set and setting and you really take time to prepare versus just haphazardly taking one of these substances on a beach or or at a festival. Mm-hmm. Something else that's really important that I've noticed in my own travels and journey with these medicines is the concept of integration. And that's taking what you've learned on these medicines and and really trying to integrate that into your life, which is so vital. It can also make the difference between uh, a journey that changes your life and a journey that just happened was amazing, and but you never get substantial change from it. Yeah. How in the clinical setting did you guys make sure that the patients integrated their experiences? Well, it's it's fairly straightforward. When you're working from a research protocol, you schedule that in as part of what happens. So it's actually part of the whole, the game plan. Absolutely. In our current new study, we're looking at MDMA-assisted therapy for social anxiety in adults on the autism spectrum. And we go through a rigorous screening process before enrollment. But after enrollment, before any treatment sessions are scheduled, we do three preparatory sessions where we help the participants build a toolkit around, you know, how do you navigate this this uh, new you know, state of consciousness you're about to explore? It's something entirely new. What'll help you stay grounded? Um, you know, what are you hoping to get from the experience? Um, we lay out, you know, strict guidelines and boundaries. We talk about the boundaries of touch and, uh, you know, what happens if you want to leave the room? And we just create that safe container and then we have the active treatment sessions but i think one of the most essential parts is the integrative psychotherapy sessions afterwards so you had this experience good bad or neutral what meaning might have you know arisen from from this what it, what have you noticed any shifts um, how has your mood been affected, if at all? And just that careful attention to, all right, what did that mean? What, uh, how do you optimize any potential benefit? And especially with a substance like MDMA, that is, it's kind of a self-limiting drug. You hear in uh, autistic and, as we say, neurotypical or non-autistic populations, MDMA the first or second time was phenomenal. And after that, it was okay, but I never quite had that, you know, revelatory or, you know, amazing opening. So if you're going to do this twice in a clinical setting, how do we optimize that? How do you take that tool and make sure that it uh, serves, you know, (laughs) your greatest good for the longest amount of time, assuming it's not a substance that you do on a regular basis because of the potential for for harm. You know, it's it's not a risk-free substance. So if you're just gonna have a few moments in that rare space, what are the gifts to be had and, and how do you optimize them? That's a, a real focus of my psychotherapy practice because I can't provide substances, I can't endorse doing them in this country. Um, I you know, can't help people like, oh, here's a good source. You can trust this chemist and, you know, uh, here's a sitter you can work with. But I, there are no restrictions on working with people after these ha- they've had these experiences, whether they're struggling after, 
you know, very frightening or distressing experience, or if they just have that kind of intuitive sense of knowing, like, I could get a lot more out of this if I had someone to talk to. One of, one so of, some people yeah. come to you after they've had psychedelic experiences to help integrate it and figure out what happened. Absolutely, because um, I know of very few people in the United States today who can go to their local shaman or, you know, medicine woman or, you know, even, even you know, the wise old crone or, or sage who, you know, holds this knowledge to you know, uh, support them after the fact, we tend to medicalize everything. And when I was a student, I heard, and, and people knew of my research interests, I'd often hear people make comments along the lines of, I could never tell my therapist I did psychedelics. And I thought that was the funniest comment. You know, I, I, I would say like, well, was it transformative? And they said, oh yeah, it was one of the most powerfully transformative <laughs> or meaningful experiences of my entire life, but I couldn't tell my therapist. Like, do you tell your therapist about your sex life? Do you, do you tell your therapist about, you know, crimes you've committed or, you know. That you couldn't tell them about you psychedelic tell, But you can't tell them about, you know, that experience with LSD when you were 15 that changed the course of your life and inspired you to pursue a course of study. And it, it seemed really um, counterintuitive to me that there was this barrier. So I thought that's one way that I can take what I've learned in the clinical environment and and make the you know the value of what we've learned more accessible to the public in in being that therapist that you can come and talk to about all the the weird things your crazy vision your sense that you know everything you were taught when you were growing up uh just doesn't fit your current life. Um, oftentimes, people will experience what uh, a term that Stan Groff um, popularized: this notion of a spiritual emergency. Who am I? <laughs> you know, I had this set of values, and now I've, you know, to use a cliche, sort of lifted the veil, and I have all these new awarenesses that don't fit. And having a therapist that can listen without judgment and give you a space to speak freely about all these kind of conflicting ideas and emotions and help integrate, pull that back into... Because uh, you, you imagine some people do come in and they realize once they're able to take the psychedelic kind of stand outside of, of their life and objectively evaluate it, some people who realize everything they're doing is wrong. It's not true to their soul. It's just symptoms of this personality mask they've been wearing. Yeah, we're seeing that more and more with people who are, you know, jumping on board for these kind of um, ayahuasca tourism experiences where, you know, I bought a ticket and I have to, eh, yeah, they told me about the, the diet I was supposed to follow. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they sort of oftentimes will treat that as kind of uh, naive superstition that, oh, you know, I must have to abstain from sex because it must have something to do with sin and purity. I've really come to be of the opinion that it's it's technology. They These are tried and tested, you know, guidelines. And there's a reason these recommendations are made. So when people go down, they're with people they don't know, or it's a spontaneous decision because everyone else is doing it, or they didn't do their due diligence and really research the location or the shaman, um, and and they they come back. They have this 
you know, experience that just shatters the, the paradigm that they'd been living under, under in their life until that point. And you come back into this culture and nothing seems to fit. My favorite analogy, um, this, this, you know, really helps me often work with clients. I imagine um, the little hermit crab that's pulled out of the shell that's gotten too small. And there's a period of time where the little crab's, you know, running around naked. How vulnerable is that space? And integrative psychotherapy can help help you find the new, bigger, better shell that suits a more expanded version of the self. So that's an analogy that I find works well when people are, are having that kind of unraveled feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and how many psychotherapists are there like you? How, how could someone find an, an integrative <laughs> psychotherapist to go see after one of these experiences? I don't have any sense of that because it's such new territory. Um, one um, buzzword that you can look for in, in, in training is, is one of the smaller and lesser known schools of psychology is the transpersonal school. It's kind of the next wave after humanistic. And transpersonal psychology um, allows for that non-ordinary terrain of of human experience. And one catchphrase that transpersonalists used, I went to a transpersonal school, is we're looking at the human experience beyond ego. And part is part of the training is being able to hold whatever people bring in the room without judgment. Um, and so that would be one pointer that I would suggest. And also not being shy the about asking. The, the like calling up when you call the office saying the client you- the, the client therapist relationship is a confidential one. And so I would encourage anyone who might be feeling a bit shy to bring it up, you, you won't get in trouble. And if your therapist doesn't have an, a non-judgmental opening uh, response, then that's a good indication that that's not the therapist for you. So you can ask and say, I've recently had my first experience with, with a psychedelic, be it psilocybin, LSD, um, is, is that something you'd be, you know, comfortable supporting me and, and helping me integrate that experience and see, see we had a, <laughs> we had a documentary on our, on our website. We have it there now in reset.me. Uh, it was done by the verge. It's about a Vietnam vet who read all this amazing stuff about MDMA assisted psychotherapy yeah. and, Really, every he tried every prescription medication and other therapy, and it hadn't worked. And so what he did is he went to festivals. He found ways to access it, test it to make sure it was pure, and then actually went and asked his normal therapist if the therapist could do a session with him. And he was able to uh, – he says in the documentary his therapist said, okay – and and he found profound healing through doing it. So I think some people are are figuring it out on the underground, figuring out how to try to get this healing um, in any way they can, and and navigating it pretty well. But it but it is also something just journalistically and and as a human being, 
I, I feel like it's it's really sad that everyone doesn't have access to to mm-hmm. this kind of healing, especially being someone on you're on the front lines, like you're witnessing how these medicines are transforming lives in a matter of hours. Yeah. Is it frustrating for you that people can't have access to them? Um, uh, yeah, it's a yes and no. It's a yes and no question. I tend to be um, very very comfortable with baby steps. Um, I've always been happy to just plod along, making little incremental progress. I made a decision right from the outset. Uh, as soon as I was working for Dr. Grobe and had an affiliation with uh, Los Angeles Biomedical Research Institute and the Hefter Research Institute, which privately funded that psilocybin research, all the individuals who contributed um, the, the funds that we needed to run that study because there was no, absolutely no thought at that time that we would be able to get any government funding or, um, you know, f- there's no pharmaceutical industry backing. So I felt very strongly that commitment to Dr. Grove as an individual who had worked for decades to slowly build uh, his reputation as a viable researcher in this field, his institution, the Hefter Research Institute and, and, and their board. And so knowing that I was, um, I can't really think of a better word than somewhat naive. I didn't, I knew that I wasn't a good match to work in the underground, that I would be the one who'd blow it, who'd make the misstep, who, <laughs> you know, and so I've, I've always been conservative in that way and, and sort of, uh, tried to separate the two. Um, but then now I've gone on a tangent. Uh, Just <laughs> in, in general, you've yeah. seen you, I, you know, I can yeah. see it in your eyes. You've seen the transformation that these medicines have caused yeah. people. Yeah. Um, does yeah. it ever get frustrating for you that people are out there that need this healing and they can't, they can't <laughs> access it? Yeah. Yeah. It's exceptionally frustrating. And, and the reason I'm even comfortable discussing it to the extent that I'm talking about it with you is, Well, there's a couple reasons. The work that MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, the incredible advances they've made with the PTSD research, that those data weren't there when I started this work. Now we kind of have a leg to stand on, and we have um, you know peer-reviewed journal articles um, from the work that Michael and Mitover have been doing with MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD through MAPS. Um, support for and that's the study that found that 83% of treatment-resistant PTSD patients were, were cured using MDMA versus 25% with just psychotherapy alone. Right. The work um, Hefter-sponsored uh, research coming out of Johns Hopkins with um, healthy participants, and they were looking at mystical experience. Can psilocybin reliably bring about this sense of a connection to the divine and, and unitive consciousness and their, their data were good too. Um, our research was to, to our shock. I don't think people realize, I kind of like telling people that early on we were kind of scratching our heads going, I wonder if anybody would publish this, maybe some obscure journal that maybe in the past is kind of, or, eh, but nobody will ever read it, but at least it'll be available to the scientific community. To our surprise, and you know, 
Delight, we published in the Archives of General Psychiatry, which is widely regarded as um, you know, probably the most prestigious and widely cited mental health journal. That was astonishing you know, to us, but that says something, that there's a readiness to reconsider these substances that were, you know, pretty hastily scheduled under the, the DEA's Controlled Substances Act uh, for political reasons and, and not science-driven reasons. Um, I think enough time has passed and things simmered down in the counterculture enough and enough people had their own positive transformative experiences that there's an opening again where it's a little easier to speak more freely about it now because there, 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 there's data, there are data to refer to. Um, and so much more is known about harm reduction and, um, you know, the importance of set and setting. More is known about dose and more is known about the impurity of substances on the street. Um, when I was working on my dissertation, I was interviewing adults on the spectrum who had taken ecstasy in non-clinical settings. And one of the questions I would, I would ask, um, I, I had a survey, I'd say, you know, um, I would kind of assess what's the likelihood that they actually had an EMDMA and, and what they took. Um, and uh, um, I would ask them, you know, how do you, how do you know it, it had MDMA? Did you do any pill testing? And they'd say, oh, yeah, I did a marquee reagent uptake test and like the, the savvy about mm -hmm. how to, to test for purity is improving. The, you know, at least a segment of the, of the population is getting savvier. And I think the internet has, has helped quite a bit. Arrowwood.org is you know, a really fantastic resource where people can read about other people's experiences and get, and get general information. So, and there are you know, countless forums now. Um, I don't know to what extent I'd feel comfortable recommending, you know, forums are just a bunch of people talking about. But they're there. But they're there. Yeah. There's, they can give you pause. They can raise questions like, oh, yeah, I was reading about this guy who, you know, had this or that experience. How might, you know, that inform choices I make? So there's more information available. Um, Books have been published. People have been attending conferences. Uh, researchers are sharing their work and their data. So it's a little more comfortable now to acknowledge um, very few people are having these experiences in clinical settings, but millions are having them outside of clinical settings. And I think there's a degree of irresponsibility to turn a blind eye to that activity just because it's illegal under the current drug laws. And that's another thing that's shifting. Tremendous shifts in drug policy. But um, When do you think yeah. psychedelics will <laughs> jump on the bandwagon? Ah! I feel like the psychedelic movement is riding on the back <laughs> of the marijuana movement. And, and these substances are so profound at actually curing uh, mm -hmm. mental health disorders. W when do you think psychedelics will, will be legalized in your dream world? Yeah, it's funny. You would think, uh, let's see, I've got to give you the most straightforward answer I can here. Um, I've kind of played a game with myself to remain as unbiased and as partial, impartial as possible. If I get too much on board with um, focusing my attentions on shifts in drug policy and activism and so on, um, 
that can impair my ability to really see what's happening right in front of my face in mm. a clinical setting. So to the extent I'm able, I don't really, I don't really go there. Um, my work isn't to try to hasten these substances becoming legal. I'm, other people are doing that work. Um, I really, I really wasn't, and I, I, I don't know if anybody in the research community really has this mindset. I've heard people kind of make this allegation that the drug re research really is kind of a, you know, wink, wink, like we're doing this to heal and help people, but it really is about making the substances legal. That's not my stance at all. Um, from my personal perspective, I'm just interested in how these tools can heal. Um, and it, it seemed like such a, a poor decision collectively as a society to lock up such powerful medicines. I want to take tiny baby steps from a science-informed perspective. When do they harm? When do they heal? Um, how can we acquire wisdom through rigorous scientific inquiry so we can learn about the learn about these tools i'm not personally super interested in in the policy shifts I'm, it's very easy for me to make that separation and say that work is being done elsewhere so right now you're participating or right now you're actually a co-investigator in a really fascinating study mm -hmm. testing the use of mdma against social anxiety for adults who are on the autism spectrum yeah this this really could be groundbreaking, especially for a lot of these adults who who have such tremendous social anxiety. How have you seen the MDMA affect the patients who've come through so far, if you're able to talk about that? Well, our study's new. I can talk about my dissertation research that was about ecstasy use, ecstasy molly, you know, outside of clinical settings. Um, what I can share about our study in, in the early stages, this is a MAPS-funded study. Um, one misconception that I like to address um, is that so many people will actually tell me about the horrible things the government has done to stop us and how terrible it must be to work with the DEA. That hasn't been the case at all. The regulatory agencies, the FDA, the Research Advisory Panel of California, the DEA, they were all professional. They did demand, you know, a, a, a rigorous level of documentation and paperwork and making sure that everything was in order. The DEA had two agents come to visit us uh, at the, the location where the studies run in, in Torrance at Harvard UCLA Medical Center. And um, they were perfectly reasonable. We'd like to see the safe where you're storing the substances. We'd like to meet the research pharmacist. We'd like to know how the substance is going to get from the pharmacy to the participants, how it will be administered. And they, Dr. Grobe needed a, a special license to work with Schedule One substances. But this, this myth that people like to perpetuate that the government was putting up all these horrible barriers just... Like it's not true. That. Not true. So no, what is no, it about no, MDMA uh, uh, specifically yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. that is um, that shows? What is it about MDMA that gives you hope that it could treat social anxiety for adults on the autism spectrum? Okay, I'll, I'll answer that question directly. I just want to say the story for medical cannabis 
the government has been a, a, another story entirely. So I want to acknowledge the, the struggles that people have had in that field of research. So what made me think that MDMA might be a, a good uh, substance to research with this population? In some ways, I think it's, it's um, I heard someone d describe it as kind of as obvious as aspirin for a headache. Um, I was influenced, one of my mentors um, was uh, Gary Fisher. Gary Fisher was a psychologist who worked with children with, um, on, the, on the classic end of the autism spectrum, children who generally were unable to use speech to communicate. And um, back primarily in the 60s when he, he was working, they thought maybe the, the early researchers um, working in this area thought maybe based on some things they'd seen with individuals who had a schizophrenia diagnosis who could speak but opted not to, they thought maybe powerful doses of LSD and psilocybin could break through what they referred to as the autistic barrier. Maybe this substance could open these children up and allow them to start speaking, and that didn't happen. But they did notice that um, for many of the kids in these studies that were not done today's, today's methodological standards would, wouldn't mm -hmm. fly these days, um, they were kind of better able to engage interpersonally. There was more eye gazing and smiling and laughter and so on. Um, but again, the data wasn't collected in, in ways that would really stand up today. But that got me thinking. What's happened since all the research was shut down in, in the 60s and 70s? What, what's changed and what sh maybe should be reconsidered? Well, there's a much better understanding of autism as a spectrum now. Um, and, uh, you know, at that time, the, the clinical distinction of Asperger's was known. That really didn't get into Western, you know, English language medical literature until, until the early 80s. So that was a shift. Um, the introduction of MDMA, that was a big shift. Um, and better understanding of how to um, provide the treatment. Um, clinically, I thought, well, this is worth taking a look at. And then I just became absolutely obsessed with the research question, what happens when adults on the spectrum take MDMA? What do they report about their experiences? So, so what does yeah. happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it was it was really fascinating. Um, this is kind of hard for me to admit right now, but my head was filled with with myths and misconceptions about autism. I'd only really ever been exposed to the stereotypes. And like many people, my mind went to, well, I've been taught that these are individuals who don't experience empathy. And at one time, early on, they were considering naming MDMA empathy. Well, let, maybe we can help give people with so-called empathy deficits some empathy. I've done, what do you say, a 180, an absolute reversal on that stance. That is a misconception. If I accomplish nothing else with this research, it would be to share with the world that autism is not defined as a lack of empathy. The, the individuals I spoke to um, with my research kind of helped me see the distinction between being able to 
have a sense of wanting to connect to humanity versus being able to understand nonverbal communication and being able to interpret social cues. So making that distinction, I kind of stepped away from this very naive and ill-informed idea that it was an empathy thing. We're working with people who certainly possess lots of empathy in you know, important domains of empathy. Empathy is an umbrella term. It means a lot of things. So I thought, well, what else is there? What benefits are they getting? And the best approach at that time, I thought, was to wipe my mind, you know, jot down all my biases, all the things I'd been taught, mm -hmm. set them aside, and enter into open-ended dialogue with uh, adults over the age of 21, and to just ask them. My interviews were very simple. Describe what happened when you took ecstasy. And uh, I did a really rigorous content analysis to look for emergent themes. And to simplify it, I came up with what I conveniently called the five C's. Not unlike what you see with neotypical populations, the big themes that came up in terms of how people changed. I was this way before, then there was MDMA, and I noticed that something about me had changed. The five C's were courage, and I use a kind of fun, convenient analogy. This is a great, it was a great form to use my fun analogy. I kind of, I started thinking of the Wizard of Oz. Mm. So the first change, courage, was kind of like the cowardly lion. He was brave. He just kind of needed that opportunity to step forward and test out what he had. Um, people reported increases in self-esteem, barriers dropping away, um, being better able to articulate their boundaries and just generally feeling more confident in social settings, being able to engage in group discussions, testing out flirting, uh, being able to jump out on a dance floor and dance. So that was a big change for some people. Um, communication. I thought of when they oiled the squeaky tin man. Communication opened up. Um, some people, and again, every... Every instance is unique. This is not universal, but enough people reported this theme that it sort of came forward out of thousands of pages of text. Um, some people reported being better able to listen to someone else. As one participant described it, he said he was better able to see the person behind the eyes and wonder who was in there for the first time, eye gazing, being able to interpret body language, or having the sense that one could understand nonverbal communication better. That's the thing with MDMA. One of my participants pointed out, you know, he thinks that a lot of what people experience with MDMA might be delusional, but um, whether you are actually better at interpreting nonverbal communication or if you just have a few hours of having that confidence that if you're not great at it, maybe you could get better. It's like training wheels on a bike. Um, connection. People talked about improved connections with family members, um, you know, romantic partners, um, all different levels of being able to connect with a group, with coworkers. Um, that one's pretty straightforward. Then there was an even higher level of that that I defined as, as communion, the sense of being part of something bigger. Um, I think of how kind of Dorothy and her traveling companions and I was kind of gelled into this cohesive, we're all in this together. They started as strangers and yet there's this bonding and this 
coming together and, and you know, experiencing a unit of consciousness. Um, that was that was big for a lot of participants. And then the one that really took me by surprise, where I really heard a qualitative difference between how people on the spectrum and people who are not on the spectrum talked about their MDMA experience, and the fifth C was clarity. And it's like the scarecrow when he's like, aha, you know, <laughs> I've, I've got it. The, the phrases people used were things like, um, for the first time ever, my thoughts straightened out. I, w I had a clarity of thought I never had before. The word clarity, clarity, clarity. There was a clear-headedness and an ability to think in a new way that was very novel. And that's what I think would be probably of most interest to neuroscientists. What is going on in the brain? We have some data, still this area of research is in its infancy. We have some ideas of mechanism of action. What, what is shifting in the brain that would allow for this profound sense of epiphany? Um, examples would include one participant had never really had a sense of agency in being able to verbalize what they did and did not want to have happen in terms of personal boundaries. And MDMA provided this insight, I can say what I want and what I don't want and affect what will happen in an interpersonal interaction with someone else. Imagine reaching adulthood and never having that clarity. There were a lot of, you know, aha moments of I put two and two together and I don't think I would have gotten there without MDMA. That, that was really remarkable to me and that from a scientific perspective is just so intriguing. Um, what happened? And so uh, one of my favorite examples from the research is um, uh, someone who did it for the first time with a friend in a club setting, someone else, a friend who was also on the spectrum, somebody planted a suggestion that, oh, maybe you'll be more comfortable with eye contact now. So he and his friend said, well, all right, let's try it. And they just became absorbed and looking deeply into each other's eyes and gazing on their faces. And for the longest time, they were just enjoying having that reduction of fear. And so towards the end of the night, the drug wore off and I started looking down at my feet, down at the floor more. Uh, he realized, you know, I'm, I'm still me. I'm still autistic and I have a measure of discomfort. Eye contact triggers a fear response. It's, it's how my brain is wired. It's uncomfortable for me. But he said, even though he was aware that he went back to a baseline state, said, walking down the street now, my shoulders are up and back, my head is lifted, and I, I glance at people's faces more now than I did before MDMA. I could talk for hours with endless <laughs> examples, but that gives you a sense, I, I hope. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And we can't thank you enough for coming on the show and, <laughs> and telling us all about your research and, and what you found. You're a true pioneer in this field and, and someone to definitely be admired and respected. And it was such an honor to have you on the show today. Is there a way that people listening or watching can, can connect with you outside of the show? How, how can they find out more about you and your research? Sure. Um, one, uh, probably the most convenient uh, route, if they're interested in the research, MAPS um, set up a really lovely website just for the study. And it's mdma.autism.org. 
And there's contact information for the research team. There's um, a really brilliant uh, piece of uh, writing by Nick Walker is a scholar, teacher, Aikido sensei um, on our team. He also happens to be on the spectrum. And his perspectives have been invaluable to us. And one of the things that he has really contributed to in a major way is shifting this perception that the goal of our work is treating or curing autism. It has nothing to do with that. That's not our intention. And he wrote a really lovely definition about what is autism. So it's worth it going to the, the site just for that. And so. do you have a personal website? As well, um, you can reach me the the Los Angeles Counseling Center. There are two of them. It's the one on Wilshire Boulevard, not the one on um, uh, in Santa Monica. Um, uh, yes, if you go to that site, my um, my contact information is available there. If you, um, I would just recommend googling uh, my name, Alicia Danforth. Um, Los Angeles Counseling Center, and I have a little piece on there where I make the case that good psychotherapy is psychedelic. So All right. <laughs> well, on that, that note, we're yeah. going to end the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And Such a pleasure. For those of you yeah. out there that still have questions about any of the substances that were discussed on today's show, you can head to reset.me and find a wealth of information about all the studies that have been done, including your studies, um, as well as just the latest news on these substances. Also, you can head to our forums if you want to start some threads or read what the chatter is about MDMA and psilocybin. And we also have a forum for this podcast in general where you can talk about this episode directly. Thank you. Thank you.